Good to see you again. Pull up a chair at the at an edge if you can. Is anybody handy with these recorders? This is you're an engineer. Let's start. Let's start. Um, yeah. um, for those of you who are new, we, we always start with a prayer. Um, and then we will do a lyric poem and then go into our work. Um, Let's see, lots of new things happening tonight, so I need to take a few minutes to lay things out for this year because we've got a year ahead of us. So, but let's say a prayer. Would, um, would do, do any of you have prayer requests, people that you would like us to pray for? Um, we're glad to include them, always. And it's become clear to me in doing this class that very often, um, I mean, it just makes me aware that we all carry burdens that. You know, when you're in a classroom, you see everybody looks calm and everything's under control and um, what a fiction that is. <laughs> um, anyway, any prayer, any prayer requests tonight? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, again, for the gift of our lives from you, the gift of yourself, um, to us in the Mass and the Eucharist, um, your life itself that we carry, those of us who go to Mass daily. For your words to us, um, always the things you ask, and for your presence, for all the ways you offer your help, your graces. Um, ask a special blessing on um, the victims of the hurricane here in Houston and in Florida. Um, what a great test of our faith and what a reminder of how much um, we put too much stock in our accomplishments here, so easily blown away, um, and how much we should rely on you. And the sign of that and the help that people have received from each other in these communities that have been devastated. 
um, how quick they were to help. What a great blessing for all of us. Um, I'm glad that we can all share that in a, even at a distance um, and any contributions we can make. And we are grateful. Um, watch over them, um, um, strengthen their hearts, um, help them to have a sense of humor. They obviously do. Um, and um, let these occasions draw them closer to you. To know how fragile our life is and what a great gift it is not to take it for granted. I ask a special blessing on all that we're going to do in this class. The whole purpose of it is to find you more intimately and everything goes on in our lives. Um, help us all to do that as a group. We are glad to have this time tonight. I certainly am. I know Suzanne is. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, just that comes from my wife. <laughs> Before you came, it was just clear that there were two troublemakers, and I forgot all about you. There are more than two. We, where's, where's Candy? Um, let's see, a couple of things, just so you know. Um, to, I mean, the answer about our children is Christopher and Kayla are back in Florida, and Ave Maria was almost not touched. I mean, everything there is a, some trees pulled up, and, but the houses are in, are in good shape, and the outlying towns are, are going to be struggling. Um, Suzanne, here, sorry, can we go back to prayer? I'm really sorry. Go back to prayer. Watch over um, Suzanne's sister, Debbie. Receive her husband into your kingdom. Let Debbie know the joy that he is with you. And whatever grief she feels, help her to keep a joy, to be glad. Um, to know that there will be another way of being with him um, um, after his death. Um, amen. Suzanne just got back today and she was at Atlanta airport and she, when she got home she took, she came back just to be with you, just to be with you guys. Um, she told me when she was at Atlanta when they were boarding, you know that practice, that habit that the people have of, of hollering out for volunteers who want to take advantage of giving up seats and she said that they offered eight hundred dollars for her to give up her seat. But for her to do that, she would have missed the class. And she didn't want to do that. In the gate in the gate next to hers in the gate next to hers, they were offering fourteen hundred dollars to give up their seats. Do you know how to do a doc here? Did you get it? Okay, a couple of business things before we start. Um, on an honest note, um, last year, last spring, when we, God, it seems like we just were together. Last spring, when we finished our work, and I was looking forward to Faulkner doing The Sound of the Fury. I had real misgivings about doing this, serious misgivings. 
for those of you who are new, we, we've gone from the ancient epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, we went through that whole epic world, and one of my goals in doing that was to show how well that epic tradition lines up with the Bible. If you put the two next to each other, I'll, I'll bring a timeline for, for the, those of you who are newcomers so you can see it. It's really remarkable. And one of the arguments that I was making is that all those ancient epics are prophetic of Christ in a stunning way. Stunning. And I, most teachers don't even see it, which is more stunning. Um, if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, every one of them ends with what we can call the, the action of the parousia. The parousia in the church is the return of the king. The return of the king. For those of you who know those epics, Achilles comes back into battle. And when he does, he brings judgment. The war is going to be over. In the Odyssey, Odysseus returns home. He brings judgment. In the Aeneid, Aeneas is searching for a home after Troy is destroyed. And he discovers that the home that he's going to is his ancient home before Troy. He's returning to origins. And it's the return of the king. And when he comes, he's going to reunite Italy because Italy is being torn apart by civil wars. So in every one of those epics, the, it, the, the, the climax runs through a Perusia action, the return of the king. And when he comes, he comes in glory. When Achilles returns to the battle, Homer describes him as having this luminous light. He goes out in the ditch to shout. Those of you who have taken it will know, but his best friend was killed. When, um, when Patroclus went back into the war wearing his armor, because Achilles wouldn't. When he learns about Patroclus' death, he goes out into the ditch with this luminous, brilliant light behind him, like a god. Homer's not playing around. I mean, he sees that there's something transcendent working through him in that moment. He screams, and 24 Trojans die. I mean, they... they run into each other in their Trojans and I mean in their uh, chariots. So all of these all of these books end in re in remarkable ways that seem to anticipate Christ. Ach Achilles, I'm just going to take a minute with this, in the Iliad he breaks from his king because his king dishonors him in the in the beginning. He's the greatest Achaean war and when he pulls out of the war the Trojans, the Greeks start losing. Um, He's the only man in that entire book who's honest about his own failings. He admits his failure when his best friend dies. He felt like he let him down. When he goes back into the war, nobody can touch him. It's like a man confessing his sins, an alcoholic, a, a, you know, whatever, the, whatever our disorders are. And when we come to those moments of admitting them, it's like we don't have anything to be afraid of anymore. Once he goes back into the war, nobody can touch him. The battle comes to an end, finally. He, he finally does something nobody could have done in that whole book. He brings that war to an end. So every one of the books ends like this. Once he accepts his death, nobody can touch him. Christ, um, how does he put it? Um, unless you die, unless you go to the ground, unless you, you know, give up your life. When you do that, follow me. It's not Christian. He doesn't know anything about divine love, but that's as close to Christ as I can imagine a pagan coming. Once he gives up his life and he admits the truth about himself, nobody can touch him. So in amazing ways, every one of those ancient epics looks forward to Christianity. That was one of the things we did. And then, and then that epic tradition gets capped off with Dante and the Divine Comedy. And those of you who remember it, 
Dante wants to climb this mountain, he wants to go to God, um, little does he know, he can't do it on his own, he needs help, and before he can go up that mountain, he has to go down. He has to learn to see his sins. People who don't want to acknowledge their sins don't realize how much is buried. He's got to see himself as he is. He goes to hell, looks at hell, which is a journal journey into the soul. It's, it's the soul of each one of us, the awful things we don't want to see. And, um, and after they complete the journey in hell, he goes up to purgatory. At the top of purgatory, he returns to the earthly paradise. And there he's crowned and mitered. Virgil says to him, now, this is St. Augustine, do it, love and do what you will. I crown and mitre you. He's bishop, he's king. That's, I mean, that's our faith. I mean, each one of us in our baptism is told, we're king, prophet, priest, king. We're, we carry those within us. The return of the king. There he is before he ascends to heaven. He completes his earthly journey. He's, he returns to himself. He becomes fully himself again before he goes on. He, nobody, according to our Catholic, can do that unless they go down, see their sins, repent. And when they come to the end of that repentance, crowned and mitered. You are master of yourself again. Those, there are those lines in the Mass, master of our, master our sins. I can't remember where they come in the Mass. but Anyway, that's, that's, um, that's what we did. I mean, that's pretty much what we did. We went on to do um, Dante and Shakespeare. And then last year, the, 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 the conclusion of the course of studies that I set up was Melville and Faulkner. We did Moby Dick and Go Down Moses. Those of you who've done it already know. Those of you who are new, if you've not done them, um, I, I think Moby Dick is Melville's um, prophetic treatment of, of America losing its Christian heritage. It's basically that. Um, um, I think what Melville's doing is um, exercising Protestant demons. Ahab is fighting this tremendous battle against the sense of predestination. It's very Calvinistic. The sense that some people are predestined to be damned is a horrifying thing. I mean, he cannot, he cannot accept the humiliation of that. And he does everything in his power to combat the evil that he finds behind it. So in Moby Dick, we've got mid-19th century Melville looking at the collapse of Christianity in the West, and particularly in America. Those of you who have read the novel know that in the opening, when Ishmael comes to New England, he finds hypocrisies everybody, everywhere. Every, every, everyone's a Christian, and they're all morally failing in their faith. I don't want to go through it, but he goes out to sea, and when he goes out to sea, what he's doing with it to see is dealing with the metaphysical dimensions of the evil that he finds at land. He has to deal directly with metaphysical issues. He has to get beneath, you know, what all this means. That's the outcast covenant, because the narrator of that book is Ishmael. It begins, call me Ishmael. Remember, he was the outcast one. He was the one that was going to get the covenant. Um, um, Abraham has Sarah, or Sarah has Abraham lie with her servant, um, Hagar, and Ishmael is the product of that, and, and she gets so envious that she sends her out, and God says he will take care of him, and he will, 
he will be the leader of the nation of men. That's a stunning prophet. That's, that's scripture. Because Ishmael <laughs> is the founder, the ultimate founder of Islam. And God says, I will raise a nation around this man. Faulkner wrote, Go Down Moses, which is about the Isaac, the chosen one. He's the one who receives the covenant and goes on. So in Moby Dick and Go Down Moses, we dealt with north and south and the two covenants that both of those writers see behind the American character. We don't have time to go into them, but those of you who are newcomers, if you want, they're all online. You can go onto the church website and you can go back over the talks that we have. That's where we ended. Yeah? And what an amazing... God. You guys continue to amaze me. But you're still around. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of reading. Uh, that's, that's where we left off. When we left off last spring, I looked forward to sound, I mean, Faulkner, and I don't know, those of you who began reading Go Down Moses, like, like the Israelites in the desert had nothing good to say, complaining and whining. And, and then we worked through it, and you began to see what an extraordinary book it was, yeah? I mean, I, I hope. I mean, it, it really is extraordinary. Faulkner, Faulkner is, it, I, one of the claims that I was making is that he's teaching us to read again because we don't read very well. And if that was true of Go Down Moses, it's true a hundred times more in in Sound of the Fury because it, Sound of the Fury begins in the mind of an idiot and you know if you started the Benji section how hard it is to make sense of that. Anyway, when we left off on spring I thought to myself I may have thrown us to the wolves. Sorry? Thrown us to the wolves. Here's the, I'm being on, really honest. My, the whole purpose of this class, as you know, the, the thing that's on the screen is to find Christ where ordinarily, ordinarily we don't see him, something like that, to see him or find him where we, ordinarily we don't. The whole purpose of the class is to see if we can't find Christ in our lives everywhere. The, Francis has called us out of our pews. He's saying, get out of the pews, go out and evangelize. My trust is that if we learn to see him where ordinarily most people don't, we will be able to take Christ to the world in a better way, I hope. Because I have no business doing this for just the literature. That isn't why I'm here. That isn't why I'm here. So the purpose is to find Christ. And when I thought about Sound of the Fury, my first thought was, are you kidding me, Robert? Find Christ in... And that's what I t took into it, reading it, the last month or so. I've never taught Sound of the Fury before. It's going to be an experiment on you guys. Um, and I discovered a couple of weeks ago, it blew me away. And then I suddenly, I hope it becomes clear tonight. I was shocked to see that the question, the reservations that I had were answered. I'm not sure that it'll, I hope, let's see what happens, what you guys think of what, what we do tonight. Because it stunned me when I saw it. But it just may be me, I'm not sure. Doc. I just need to know because I'll be ordering books this week because I think we're out of Sound of Sound Fury. Of Fury. Yeah. 
So some of you, some of you picked them up last spring, some of you picked them up over the summer. If you need a copy of The Sound of the Fury, um, just raise your hand, speak to me after class, something so I can... Do it now. Could you, could you just raise your hand so she gets a count because we're going to forget. Anybody need the book? Sound of the Fury? Three, Doc. Anybody else? Or four? Um, and while we're, while we're there, could all of you pay, because they think, they're, they think we're running off with their money because everybody's had the books now for summer and nobody's paid for... Some people have. Oh, some, but could you be sure if you haven't paid tonight? For, it's, it's $12 every book. We've got $12 for Sound of the Fury and 12 for each of the Snopes trilogy, the Hamlet, the Town, the Mansion. Oh, 15. Oh, sorry. 15 each, okay. That's 15 for the, for the other three? 15 each. Oh, yeah, for, right. Yeah. Okay, so I'm really looking forward to, to, to the end of this class to see what we get to because it was a... Uh, We'll see, see what you guys think. Here's my plan for this, for this year. We're gonna, we're gonna do the Sound of the Fury. We're gonna take one section each week, the Benji section, the Quentin section, um, the Jason section, and the Dilsey. So we'll take four weeks. When we're finished with Sound of the Fury, I, I thought it would be good to take a break from Sound of the Fury because it's gonna be really challenging and do some short stories. So I thought we'd do a couple Hemingway, um, some Flannery O'Connor. If you know anything about Flannery O'Connor, she's a Catholic writer. She writes in what we call grotesque comedy. It's all about the workings of grace confronting evil. Um, she's a remarkable um, writer. She died really young. Um, we'll do some of her short stories. Eudora Welty, a couple of her stories. Um, and um, one particular story called Flowering Judas by um, Catherine Ann Porter, which to me is a remarkable story. They, they all speak to what we're doing, and they're all American, so it'll give you a, a, a broader, deeper view of who we are as a people, our culture. You know I've been hamming, hammering that, hamming you over in the head with that, that our culture and how well we see ourselves and whether, how well we understand ourselves as a people, who we are, as Americans. Um, after those short stories, we'll pick up the Snope Trilogy. We'll do Faulkner's Snope Trilogy, which is what he does at the end of his life. He begins it in the middle of his life with Hamlet, and he picks it up at the end. Um, I think it's the, it, like Melville's Moby Dick, it is the most searching, searing critique of the entrepreneurial spirit in America. Some of you may squirm with it, I don't know, but it's, it's uh, anyway, it's his work on this stri upward striving to the American character that we got a hint of in Melville in Moby Dick. We'll do C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces, which is a really easy short read. It's a, I think it's his best fiction. He did it towards the end of his life. But to me, it's, I, it, people don't know about it. They know about the Narnia books. Um, they don't know Two We Have Faces. It's his reworking of the Cupid Psyche myth, the classical Cupid Psyche myth. I think it's remarkable, and it's very short. So it'll be easy to, easy, easier than lots of the other works we're reading. 
And I thought we'd end with Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. Um, it's a long, long, difficult book, but it's... Um, huh? What? So we're going to do it in Russian? If you'd like to teach it, you're welcome to. God, can we get a dunce corner and a hat? Um, the Brothers Karamazov. Um, it, it, it's Dostoevsky said it was about the Russian soul, and it really is. It really is Russian. But, but insofar as it's a great work of, of literature, it speaks to universal things, and I think it will speak to us. It's very much about the modern, the modern person, the modern mind. All the way through this, I swore that I would do this, even though it's not going to be easy. Um, um, those of you who are new, we start every class with a lyric poem because it was my way of trying to get the lyric in and a reminder that there's a musical element to all, all poetry. And I, I'm thinking of all these novels as forms of poetry, you know that. We start with lyrics and all of them have to do with something in directly involving, immediately involving Christ. So that that stays before us. Um, Last year I said we would do um, um, T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets. That's going to take something. But I, what I'm going to do is, boy, is this going to be... I won't be surprised if Suzanne's back there shaking her head. <laughs> I won't be surprised if in another month <laughs> the tables are empty. Four Quartets, to me, is one of the most stunning pieces of poetry in the 20th century. And like Faulkner's work, it's not easy to read. Um, but I really believe it's important for us to grow in our faith, to come to terms with some of these difficult things because they are our age. We don't belong to the 19th century, we don't belong to the 18th. Um, it's a different world and I'd, I'd like us to do everything we can to try to come to terms with that world, however hard it is for us. So that's what we're going to do. That's it. Um, we talked about getting together and having a meal and watching Faulkner's The Reavers. Um, Suzanne and I watched it after we finished last spring, and it's just a delightful movie. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to set dates for that tonight because I want to get going. But next week or the following week, we'll find a date, probably a Sunday or whatever is a convenient day, and we'll get together and have a meal and watch. The Reavers. It's just a delight. It's his last work. It's a delightful book. That's it. That's what we're doing. Any any questions? Should we just mark Mondays in our calendar to 2019 or 2020? <laughs> <laughs> the number's growing. It's not stopping. We've been saving up all summer. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Like mold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. We have the mansion. Yeah. You didn't mention that one. The Snopes trilogy is the. Is the mansion. No, no, no. Oh. The Snopes trilogy is the Hamlet, the town, the mansion. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. There's three. I think that's what. Okay. That's twelve <laughs> That's where his question was going. <laughs> We're gonna knock that out in two nights. Right. The the Ham. By the way, the the trilogy is much much easier to read. I mean, it's just it's a straight narrative. Sure. It's a. It's a <laughs> 
And by that time, I mean, you will be different readers. As you get through The Sound of the Fury, you won't, you won't look at books the same way anymore, truly. The Hamlet, he wrote The Hamlet in the middle of his life about this figure called Flem Snopes, who begins to take over in this Hamlet community, this rural southern community. And then he, it's like it took hold of him, and then later in his life he picked it up again, did the town, because Flem goes from this little hamlet to the town, he becomes the town banker, and finally I think the mayor. And then the last one is the mansion, where he, I mean it's this upward mobility of Americans wanting to get ahead, and um, so it's three books, and at the center of it is, should I tell you, um, Years ago, when I was still teaching at UD, I think because our kids were involved then, that somebody who was going to do the mansion wanted to do her senior thesis on Mink Snopes, who's the hero, the hero, particularly of the last book. He's a figure that runs through the whole thing. He gets put in jail for killing a man in the, in the Hamlet at the very at the outset of the story. She hated this man, Mink Snopes. And the kids knew how much I loved him. <laughs> and told the girls, she came over for dinner, um, I'll never forget this, and we talked about it and met a couple of times afterwards. She did her um, senior thesis on it. She presented him as a, monter, a modern anti-hero. I got teary listening to her thesis. What she did with him was amazing. He's gonna be one of these anti-hero, like Achilles, Odysseus. All the figures that, remember Dante was gonna be damned. Every, almost every one of the figures we've been looking at is not this idealized. They are flawed human beings who, because of whatever happens in their life, do go on to do something that's sort of remarkable. So we will do um, the trilogy, those three books. Okay. Let's start because there's something going on here we have got to get to. Can you pull out Supernatural Love? Some of you have already heard this several times, so, but for those of you who haven't, ordinarily I don't, I try to avoid saying much on the lyrics because I want to get to, I just want you to hear them, to experience them. Um, there's a lot going on in this poem that you could miss, so I just make a few comments and then I'll read it. It's a, um, it's about a, it's it's told from the point of view of a woman looking back at herself when she was four. So the perspective we have is that of an adult who's not in the poem, recalling an experience when she was four. She was sewing one of those little samplers, stitching a sampler pattern. She had this fascination. And the sampler, if I remember, was beloved. I haven't read it like the words beloved. She had a fascination for the word carnation. And her father could not understand why. He couldn't fathom it. Her father was a scholar. I think this is very autobiographical, by the way. Um, her father was a scholar, a historian. But, but we don't necessarily have to make that assumption here. Just he's, he's the girl's father. He goes to the dictionary the way a theoretical man would, as if... The way to understand something is to go to a dictionary. I hope I put that out of everybody's head because that's not a way to understand something if you want to understand something. A word can mean a thousand things that the dictionary will never get to. He goes to the dictionary to look up the word and she pricks herself when she's doing this. That's the poem. 
the father comes to her at the very end she goes daddy daddy now that's the poem but here's a couple of things to keep in mind Um, the root of incarnation is carnation it means a pink flesh like flower it's associated with the flesh and a pink color in the French um, it's got associations with nail or nails she pricks herself with a needle she bleeds and then she'll say daddy daddy remember Christ at the cross said so um, that's the poem nothing seems to happen but there's a couple of fundamental questions we have to ask herself seems to me what the poem is about is in this moment without her knowing it as a four-year-old girl, she is participating in the crucifixion. Does she know it? No, she doesn't have a clue. Does her dad know it? As an intellectual, I'm not sure that he does. But he may, he may be drawn into it. I don't know. I mean, it's one of the questions. And I'll leave it to you. We're, we're not going to talk about it. I'm just going to read it. Um, the other thing to note is this. There is nothing in this poem that does not speak. The dictionary speaks. The thread, the needle, speak. There's not an inanimate thing that I can recall. I haven't read this now in six, nine months. So I can remember, there's not an inanimate thing that does not speak. Everything has a word. It's, it's an expression of the logos, the things in creation. Those of you you know, have been doing this for years, been waiting for the whole... We're, we're, we're setting. We're, next week, we're going to set up a table for the troublemakers. Yes. Okay. We'll just put my name on it. Yes. If I show up great, if I don't, that's okay too. Um, I'm glad you're here. Truly, I've been looking forward to seeing you. Um, everything speaks. Everything speaks. Everything has. Those of you who've done the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, The Wind Hover and Kingfishers Catch Fire, you know that everything in nature speaks, speaks its own name. Everything, according to St. Thomas, everything in nature is a subject in its own right. I want you to hold on to that. This is St. Thomas. We turn things into objects. We make them an object with our mind. And we forget that everything in nature is a subject in itself, a tree, a flower, Whatever it is, each thing in creation has its own being. It is something. Hopkins says they speak. Everything in this poem speaks. Okay, I'll leave it at that, and then we're going to jump into sound sound of Um This is by Gertrude Schneckenberg. She's an American poet, a contemporary. <coughs> Supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamp-lit answer. Tilting his hand, his slowly scanning, magnifying lens, a blurry, glistening circle he suspends above the word, carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked, infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. The other word that I forgot was tomb. Keep in mind the word tomb in this too, along with the, the nails. and 
I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as though a lens ground for a butterfly. Peers down flower hallways towards a room, shadowed and fathomed as this study's gloom, where as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there, he bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch. Beloved, X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does where following each X I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads, a pink variety of clove. Cronaccio, the Latin meaning flesh, as if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy, the stems squeak in my scissors, child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud the clove, a spice dried from a flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clou, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth, beloved. But my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand. It is myself I've sown, the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnation blooms from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ. when I was four. I cannot get through this poem. <laughs> Pretty good until the end, and then it just... <laughs> read it on your own, and it, I, you know, you already heard it. When you read poems, be sure you read them aloud, because they need to be read aloud, because they're musical. Nothing happens. How many, how many days do we go through where nothing happens? By the way, this is where we're going. This is such an amazing lead into this. I, I hope we'll see. Nothing happens. This girl is sewing a sampler. Her, um, her, she's fascinated with the word carnation. She's four years old. She doesn't have a clue. Her father goes to the dictionary. He hears this dictionary speaking to him. Everything in the poem speaks. Nothing happens. Christ is everywhere. Would we have seen it without the poet? I've been claiming all along that poets are the one who gives us eyes to see these things. So... Supernatural love. Do you all have copies? Okay, let's start. Wow. What can you do here? Um, I wanted to do a review of Moby Dick and Glenn and Moses, but I'm, I'm not. Um, um, I may pick it up again next week because we're late, and I want to, because um, I really want to, 
Um, I'd like to say a few words looking back, um, just to review as a way of making a transition, but I, I'll put it off. Um, the Sound and the Fury. This is an early work of Faulkner's and it established him as a major right away because it was so, so different, so difficult to read. Some people saw the genius of it right away. Uh, you know that the book is composed of four sections. The opening section is the Benji section. The next one is the Quentin section. The Quentin section goes back to um, 1910. The Benji section opens on, what is it, April 7th, 1928. That's the present of the, of, the, of the novel. It goes back to 1910 when um, Benji's brother, Quentin, had gone off to Harvard and it, it covers the events of a day in his life when he's going to commit suicide. He's going to take his life. The third section returns us to um, this time period, this weekend, and it's another brother, it's Jason, Jason Thompson, and we get Jason's story of what's going on. And the final chapter, the Dilsey chapter, deals with Dilsey, who is the black maid, who is the one really who holds his family together. Um, in every one of these sections, we, we get a, a personal view of the story of this family. It reminds me very much of the Gospels. We get four, and I, I, it, it's hard for me to, to believe that Faulkner didn't have this on his mind. We've got four very different readings of the same event. And it really becomes clear that people see this, the life of this Compson family differently, as anybody growing up in a family would, because everybody's different. But what, we've, what we're witnessing is the disintegration of a family. Um, Benji, Benji's got mad. Everybody thinks that Benji's one of, one of the many signs of a curse on this family. Quentin's suicide. The father's an alcoholic. The mother is a hypochondriac. She does nothing but complain all the time. The children are left to sort of um, get along on their own, and there, there's almost not a scene we, in which we see them when they're not quarreling, squabbling, whining, doing what kids do. So, in one sense, we can say that The Sound of the Fury is about the disintegration of, a, of an aristocratic family whose roots are in the past, um, who has no place in the present anymore because of the cultural changes in, in the democracy, in American democracy. We can also see it as, as an image of the disintegration of the South, that the South was founded on aristocratic principles. If we go back in history, you know that. It was a plantation culture. Um, and it's moved away from that culture, and this family has no place in it anymore. Um, the title of the book, The Sound of the Fury, comes from a passage in Shakespeare's Macbeth. I'll read the passage here. Um, if, if you've not read it, there's no time to go into it, but, but the, the, the play is about this great warrior, Macbeth, coming out of um, um, a revolt, fighting with his king to put down this revolt, revolt, he begins to traffic with these witches and makes an agreement with them. So Macbeth is trying to control the future because he wants his offspring to become the king. And to, to set things in motion, he's going to kill his own king. His, his wife has as much to do with that murder as he does. She keeps spurring him on. 
Um, once he takes, once he kills his king, rebels begin to um, gather together to put him down. And late in the book, the rebel forces come to him, and there's battles. Macbeth, through all of this, is a great warrior. Like all of Shakespeare's heroes, he, he, there is, he is a noble, noble figure um, who, like all tragic heroes, has this tragic flaw and commits himself to these witches. Towards the end, um, it, looks, um, it looks really bad for Macbeth. I mean, his forces are losing everywhere. He is undaunted. He, he just is fearless. He's a warrior. His, his attitude towards battle is to go back and fight. He's not afraid. And then suddenly he gets the news that his wife died. And this is his response to that news that Lady Macbeth just died. And by the way, she died from a fever because the guilt of her involvement. I mean, she was a she was probably more influential in getting the king killed than Macbeth. She's so adamant about it. She kept calling him a coward, and um, she dies. And this is his response at hearing that news. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. What meaning is there to life? It all seems like a game, you know, that we're playing a role um, that has no meaning. He gives a speech and immediately goes back to war. That's what he does. He's a, he's a fighter. And he says, until Dunsin Dunsinane Wood moves, I will not be afraid. Because the prophecy of the witches was, you have nothing to be afraid of until you meet with a man who's not born of a woman, and until Dunsin what was the name of Dunsinane Wood, moves. Well, he's fearless. He knows the, moves, the woods are not going to move. And what man wasn't born of a woman? Well, he engages one of the rebel lords who is heir to the throne, if I remember correctly. It's been so long. And Macbeth says, I'm not afraid of you. I have nothing to be afraid of until I come up against somebody who is not born of a woman or a man not born of a woman. And the man says to him, I think it's um, Malcolm, says, you fool, I was not born of a woman. I was torn from my mother's womb. And just before that scene, one of his soldiers come and says, I just saw Dunsinane Wood move. Well, Macbeth is shaking with terror right now. And he overcomes the terror and he ends fighting. That's the play. But this speech is his right after he receives the news that his wife is dead. And he's questioning whether there's whether he's just not gone through the motions by setting out to do what he did because it was all pointless. And I know I know lots of us have those moments when we look back on our life and we say, "This is what I spent my life for. And what am I doing? What did I? Why did I do this?" Or so behind all of this is this this question of whether there's any meaning to life, the sound and the fury. Most modern critics will pick up this book and see it as Faulkner's. Um, confirming that life is futile, meaning. It's a modern work um, showing the meaninglessness of life. And that's made nowhere more clear than in the opening section in Benji, because if you've read the Benji section, you know that 
nothing seems to mean anything. We're all over the place. So the major theme, the disintegration of family. As we read through the book, we keep, we, we, by the way, we will not see the whole meaning of it until we get to the end and put it all together. We won't see the meaning of the Benji episode until we've got the others. So we have, we've always, I've always said that. We won't understand the parts until we see the whole. So there's lots to be said about the Benji section that will surface later, but still there's a lot we can see about it right now. What we learned going through the Benji section is that the past keeps intruding into our life. That life is not linear, and we all know that. If you go back to the old novels, if you go back to a Jane Austen novel, and you all know my feelings about her, how, how much she means to me, everything's linear. The novel from the beginning has always been linear, one thing after another. That's the way our life is, right? It's linear in one sense. But we also know that things from the past keep jumping into our lives, they intruding with what, what um, um, remembrance of things proust and remembrance of things past and then finally Joyce in the modern world. That in these early novels we get novels in which these things from the past keep intruding into life and actually begin to take a life of their own. They're so, they're so powerful. We can call them stream of consciousness, we can call them involuntary memories, people call them different things, but we know we can be going through a day um, I'm thinking particularly of losing a beloved, um, but it can be a traumatic experience. Um, we can be going through a day and then suddenly we'll see something and that thing will trigger a memory and suddenly <coughs> that event from the past with all of its force will spring up on us. Um, the whole Benji episode takes that form. Um, I'm going to put this question out. I'm, I'm not going to answer it now. I want, to, I want to come back to it at the very end. It seems to me that one of the things that the, that the Benji section is about, and this is not obvious on the surface of it, is love denied. And I want to leave it there. It is, the, the, I, I think the Benji section in one, in one sense is about love denied, and yet it's offered still. And I'm going to come back to make sense. I don't want to do this. I don't want to give it away because we're going to go there. This is, I think, where the whole section's going. Is that section about love being denied and is it offered still in the face of that denial? I think that's one of the great themes of that opening section. Religion is gone. Um, this is a modern family. There is no God. The father is very cynical. Um, um, he, had, he believes in nothing. Um, he's arrogant, he's an alcoholic, he drinks. Um, I mean, there's very little good to say about it. And ironically, if you've read it, you know that the section closes in a very tender way because Benji is remembering the scene when his father came, put all the kids on his lap, and the, the section ends with the recollection of his father at the doorway after having come in the room to put the kids to bed and kissing and then leaving. Um, so there's this tender moment at the very end of the section. The theme of reading, <laughs> you, you could have predicted that. I've been saying, for those of you who are new, I've been saying from the beginning that we have not read a book in which reading has not been a major theme. We don't read very well. If you go through the Benji section, you'll see that almost nobody, nobody understands Benji. Luster is constantly misinterpreting. Um, Jason can't read him. Even, even Dilsey, who gets close, 
misreads him often. Whenever he reacts to something, we're shown that there's a motive behind it. It becomes clear to us that nobody else sees. They're completely missing him. The only ones who can see him are the readers. And we're invited in, and it makes, it should make us aware of how badly we read. Think about the instances in our lives when somebody does something that really irritates us. And read this and then ask, do we really see that? Do we really understand what was going on? Or do we make assumptions about, you know, because we were inconvenienced or impatient or whatever our prejudices are? Or... So this theme of reading that, um, is, is very important. Nobody in this book reads anybody else well. We're watching people engage all the time and never connecting. There doesn't seem to be very much love in this book. The, the, the two exceptions, and it's interesting, the men typically tend to live in their heads. We've been seeing that right along. The two exceptions of that are Caddy and Dizzy. Um, Dizzy's very generous. She watches over the kids. She doesn't complain rarely. The, the mother complains always. Um, Dilsey's very generous. Um, towards the end, um, she makes a point of, of getting the, the ingredients to make the cake for Benji because she knows that Jason would not approve of her spending the money. Jason is so niggardly in what he does with money. She buys it freely when we know that she doesn't have any money. And at the very end of the story, there's very little good to say about Quentin, Caddy's child. At the very end, she's the one who gives Lester the quarter. He spent the whole chapter the whole day looking for a quarter. There's very little good to say about Quentin. She gave him a quarter. And we know through the book that Caddy's always looking after Benji. Always. So at the center of this um, um, are these actions that most people don't see that I think it's important for us to be aware. We've been talking about form all along and I've been making this distinction between the subject matter and the form, the, the action, the plot, whatever, whatever, whatever it adds up to. You know that most people who are critics today approach a novel by focusing on its theme without looking at its form. And that means they can come from psychology, politics, anthropology. They, they can all come to a story and find it whatever they want and not read it for its form. So one of the things we have to be concerned with here is, in all the, is what's the form. A couple of things to keep in mind. Every one of the voices in this novel is a male voice. Benji's, Quentin's, Jason's. The narrator of the fourth section, I'm assuming is a male. Dilsey's the main character. It's the male characters who are speaking. There are no women we don't get into the consciousness of a woman. It's really important to see that here. And yet, the central figures of the book are women. Caddy's, in some ways, the most important figure in this book. Benji does nothing that doesn't have her in mind. He keeps going to the fence. Why? Lustard misses it. And, and every time the golfers holler out Caddy, he has no clue. There, there he is again reading. He's not reading well at all. So the feminine figures are at the center of this book. We don't get any of them um, from their perspective, but they are central to this work. They're the most giving creatures, too, in, in, in the whole of the book. 
Um, and the last thing to think about the plot, the action, the whole action of this story takes place on Easter weekend. And this is crucial for me. And I, uh, I want to, I don't want to answer this, but I want to throw out this question. It all takes place on Easter weekend. And you, sh- you all have that sheet I gave you, right, with the events on it? You don't have to take a look at it, but you'll, you'll, you'll see that what happens is... Here, let me have your attention, because I, I really... I really I've I got to come back to this, because I'm not sure that I understand it very well, and I really, I really want your minds on this. It opens on the Benji section on Easter Saturday, Easter Eve. So it opens on Easter Eve in Benji's consciousness, and in Benji's consciousness, we get the entire history of the family. We won't get that from the other characters. We get it from an idiot. He's not like modern intellectuals who are in their heads, because if that were the case, I'm assuming we wouldn't get the story at all. We're in the mind of an idiot because we're in the mind of an idiot. We're getting everything because he's so susceptible to memories. Whatever triggers it sends him off. We get the whole history there. So Saturday evening of Easter weekend, we're in Benji's consciousness. We go back to Quentin in 2000, or I mean um, 1910, to the day when he commits suicide. Then we're back to the to the present again to Easter Friday to Good Friday. That's the Jason section, and Jason to me is the most infernal. If there's a character in the book that you can say is damned, it would be Jason. He is cruel, heartless, mean. Vicious in ways. Um, now you won't, you don't know that in the Benji section. Although when you read the Benji section, keep in mind that we can already see the kids becoming signs of what they're going to become later in life. Jason is vicious. He's a mean, self-serving, cruel man. That's Good Friday. The book ends on Sunday on the Dilsey episode. It's all about Dilsey and she will take Benji and everybody else and go to church. And it will end with this strange scene with Benji and the character losing it again. It'll be the last scene in the novel. So the novel takes place on Easter weekend. Good Friday, Saturday, (coughs) Sunday. And in the middle of that, thrown into that, is the, um, the Quentin suicide episode 10 years earlier. Why did Faulkner do that, and why did he invert the chronology and put Saturday first? He starts it with Saturday, right, with (coughs) Quentin, then we come to Jason, so we go back a day in time. Why did he invert that? Remember when we did, (laughs) remember when we did, um, remember when we did, Remember when we did Moby Dick and it begins, Call Me Ishmael. Nobody says that unless that's not his name. Why did Melville do that? Ishmael's the outcast one because there's no place for him anymore in this Christian world that's lost his bearings. It's not a Christian culture anymore. He's an outcast. And we saw from Go Down Moses that the Isaac, Isaac the chosen one, makes this choice to renounce his inheritance to offset the sin that he discovers, remember? And then learns at the end that it seems to have meant nothing. I don't believe that's, you know, I mean, you know my reading of it. I mean, just because Christ sacrificed himself doesn't mean everybody's going to be good. But that's his action. Writer poets don't do these things without 
a purpose, without a reason. So why did Faulkner put this story in Easter weekend when it seems to be about the disintegration of a family, a family seeming going to hell, and a family that's losing its identity? Benji has his name changed. Caddy's name can't be spoken in the house. She's nameless. Ruska says, you don't do that to a child. You don't even speak about her. They take her identity away. She becomes a modern, dislocated person. She has no roots anymore. So if you, if you, all the signs seem to suggest this is a family that's going to help. Seems to be to have lost itself. Benji commits, I mean, uh, Quentin commits suicide. The, the, the blacks, the Negroes say, there's a curse on the house. And they keep count of the, um, the signs of that. So if all that's true, why did Faulkner put it on Easter weekend? So that to me is one of the major, one of the major questions we have to ask. The second one, the second um, question that I want to ask is this. And I'm going to do, I want to do some readings um, to get you into the book and then come back to this question. As I was reading this this, this time, I've not taught this, this is wonderful, this is really wonderful. Um, we can read the Benji section like a detective story. I don't know if any of you felt that when you were reading, but I'd, I'd say if you went back and read it a little bit more closely, you'd see this. Over and over and over and over again, we have these scenes involving Benji and Caddy, with Benji coming to Caddy and Caddy saying, what does she say? <coughs> what are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to say to me? She says that again and again. Say it to me. What are you trying to say to me? I'm, I'm going to pick this up and do it, so because it runs through that whole section. So here's my, here's my question, serious question. What is Benji trying to say? What are the words that he can't speak? Okay, he can't speak and yet the whole section is narrated to us, right? What are those words? What's he trying to say to her? That's my huge question. When we go to, through life, I'm thinking as a father and mother, most of us are family, <coughs> husbands and wives, we put such a value on the words that are spoken to us. You know this from my work in Othello. Remember I said, Othello says, I'm uneducated, I can't speak. Mm -hmm. And I made this argument. Shakespeare gives him poetry because that's a way of showing that there are things in a man that he can't express that we're more than our words. That's one of the values of poetry, that because true poets help us to feel things that we can't express ordinarily in words. Is that clear? And if you remember Othello, you remember that he's got some of the most powerful romantic statements in all of Shakespeare's canon, the things he says does Desdemona. We only hear from another Shakespearean hero. It, to me, it's extraordinary. And he says, I can't speak. So we're to understand he's close to illiterate. I mean, he's just a simple guy. And yet he speaks the most powerful words of any lover of his beloved. It seems to me one of the things we learn is that poets help us to feel things that are too deep for us to express. How many times do we go through life taking something too literally as if that's all that was meant 
when we don't have the words to express something deeper. I watch, is that clear? I watched my older son and his wife, they came over to visit me the other day, um, and they, were, they weren't quarreling, but they were, they were a little bit edgy with each other about something they'd said, and I told them to be still. Um, but they were holding each other to a literal level of what they'd been saying, and I said, you know, did you misunderstand what you were trying to say to each other? And I'm thinking about this now. Who, how many of these characters really understand another person? And how, how many of these characters understand Benji at all? Do any of them have a glimpse of what we've been let in on in this world? What does that do for the way that we read the world? Or the way we, sh hopefully, the way we deal with each other? Is that clear? No. <laughs> Everybody's shaking their head yes except my wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, that table's getting bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> the longer we're here. Um, let me just leave it at this, because I want to read now. What, what is it that Benji wants to tell Caddy? Because she, she is the center of his life, and she's gone. Um, I just leave those. So those are the two major questions for me. Why this Easter weekend, and in, with respect to at least the Benji section, there's a suspense building. He keeps, he keeps, we keep seeing him in situations where he meets Caddy, and she keeps saying, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? Here, let's, I want to do some readings, and then I want to come back to see what you think. You know from the handout I gave you last week, <coughs> that there are all these events in the Compson family history. Damity's death, 1898-99, um, Caddy's funeral in 1910, um, she has Quentin. Oh wait, by, by the way, one of the difficulties of reading, you know this, is, is that time overlaps constantly. We, uh, we keep being taken back to some time period because what, what um, drives Benji is association, purely. Something will just trigger something and he will go there arbitrarily. So there's no rationality, there's no cognition. He doesn't have any depth perception or understanding, he just associates. So we're constantly taken back and forth to these places and it seems, it seems chaotic. It's hard to follow. And yet, Faulkner's given us clues. We know that the, the, the different slaves watched over Benji at different times. Um, um, Birch and TP and Luster in that order. Birch watched over uh, Benji when he was a boy, TP when he was in his teens, and then um, Luster now. And we also know that, and what, what also makes the section confusing is because very often we're um, a character is identified and we're not sure what time period it's in because it'll say TP and if we keep reading we realize TP's a child. He's not, you know, the caretaker of Benji at one time. Or it'll say Quentin and we'll think it's Caddy's brother when it's Caddy's daughter. So um, why does Faulkner do that? I mean, first of all, because it's real. 
I, I just have to say that. He does that. I mean, what makes him a remarkable writer is because he's writing the way things actually are. If you include our interior life in, as part of what makes up our world, it's a mess <laughs> a lot of the time. So he's being, he's being very faithful to the way things are and the confusion that we have to deal with. The question is, can we straighten the confusion out? Can we, can we, do we take the, the pains that we should to look through these things to find out what the meaning? Because if we don't, the reading is, and this is what most modern critics say, it's futile. Faulkner's, Faulkner's showing the futility of life. I don't think that's what he, and that is not what Shakespeare was doing in Macbeth, by the way. And I do not believe, this is where I'm going to, I don't believe this is what Faulkner is doing. This is not about futility. <laughs> where is Christ? I'm going to try to show him here in a minute, but let's, let's do some readings to put some of this together. Turn to page three, very opening. I'm just going to read through a couple of these because they're good examples of the overlapping. <laughs> The Benji's going through this day, and we're presented with all these involuntary memories springing up, okay? Now here, look here. Here's the plot. This is wonderful. I love this. The story begins with um, Lester and Benji walking along a fence. The fence is a border to the, the land that used to be the Compson land that was Benji's. But it was sold to, to golf developers so that Quentin could go to Harvard. And we know the stupidity of that act because Quentin takes his life. It was all for nothing. Benji and Lester are walking along the fence. Um, and the golfers are calling out, Caddy, Caddy. Benji's emotionally moved because he thinks his sister's there. He starts moaning and crying. Lester gets angry <coughs> at him. I mean, there it is again, this misreading. Do, do we have any clue what's going on in another person when we see them doing what they do? How often we miss? He, he, they try, start to climb through the fence. Benji catches his clothes. Luster unsnags it. And immediately we're taken back to a moment when Caddy had done that to Benji when he was a, a child, an infant. They continue to, to walk along the fence. Um, sorry, let me, I want to... Be sure I've got this all. Um, they come to the branch and they find a group of Negroes. It looks like a, a, a small community of Negroes who are doing their washing there. While he's there, he talks to a person that seems to be a little bit older than him. And they talk about the show in town. Lester tells him he's looking for a quarter. The man has very, very little good to say about white people. He clearly has prejudices of his, just like the whites have prejudices against the uh, black. Golfers come looking for a ball that was hit in the, in the stream. Um, and Lester says it's not there. And one of the men calls for the caddy. He goes off and Benji gets worked up again. Lester goes off to find the ball, hoping to sell it to somebody to get his quarter. Because the one thing he wants more than anything else is to see that show. I mean, it's really interesting to see the motives that drive people. How how, how much their preoccupation with certain things keeps them from connecting with another human being. That's basically what's going on here. Um, after Luster finds the ball, they move off again, and Benji heads towards the barn. And remember, all this time, these memories are springing up. And they approach this area where um, Quentin, Caddy's daughter, 
is in a swing with this other showman. And immediately Benji's taken back to that time when Caddy herself was in the swing with a showman. Um, when they're there, um, the, the guide um, starts to mistreat um, Benji. He lights a match and, and wants to see if Benji will put it in his mouth. And Benji gets upset and starts to move off. And, and Quentin gets really angry at him and moves off. And um, the, the man is there with Lester. And Lester looks around and he found, finds this shiny object on the ground. And he thinks it will preoccupy Benji, and it turns out to be a rubber. I don't know if any of you got that, but it's, it's a rubber, it's a condom. And it leads the man to ask what Quentin's been doing. And Lester says she, she, he can't keep track of the guys that she goes out with. Um, they go to the house. Um, it's Benji's birthday. Um, Dilsey calls them for dinner. Quentin comes for dinner. Jason arrives from, um, from work then, sits down. He and Quentin quarrel with each other, and they fight, and Dilsey actually physically um, gets involved in it. During this whole episode, Benji's getting more and more upset, and I want to read it because you'll see the more intense he becomes in upset, upset, the more susceptible he is to these memories, so that they come rushing fast at the very end. Quentin rushes out. Benji goes into the library. He huddles by himself. Everything's quieting. Lester comes in and finds him there. He takes him to his bedroom. Remember, he just wants to get onto the show. He takes him into his bedroom, dresses him for bed in his night clothes, takes him to the window, and they watch the tree rattle. And we're to know that Quentin is climbing down the tree just the way Caddy did, you know, um, what was it, 18, 18 years earlier. That, um, she's going to go out and see these guys. And Benji goes to sleep with these reveries of the father in the library with all of the children on his lap. And at the very end, the father coming in and kissing Caddy and putting his hand on Benji and then walking out of the door and Benji saying, and then the black came in its night. And the last words of the novel, if I'm reading them, or the, the section, if I'm reading them correctly, um, um, and then I could see the windows where the trees were buzzing. Then the dark began to go in smooth, bright shapes. It's like dawn beginning to come, I think, like it always does, even when Caddy says that I have been asleep. I think he's waking. I'm not sure, but I think he's waking. So a new day. So it begins with the two of them going along the fence, going to the branch, going to the swing, going home for dinner, the quarrel, then you're going to bed and the night ending and the dog coming. That's it. Nothing happens. If you were to take the Benji, this is really crucial in my mind, if you were to take the Benji episode, nothing happens. They walk along the fence, Lester's looking for a quarter, they go to the branch, Lester talks with these people while they're washing laundry, they go to the swing, this guy does some insulting things, Quentin runs off, they go home, they eat cake, they quarrel, go to bed. It's like an ordinary family in some ways. Nothing happens. And yet underneath this thing, this whole past is brought to the surface in Benji's consciousness. A little bit scary. And I forgot to say this, and I've got to say this, but I'll forget it. For those of you who are here with when we did the Aeneid, I can remember saying to you before we started the Aeneid, because everything was going to be asked of Aeneas, I said, 
the, the need is not for faint-hearted people. I remember saying that. If you, those of you who were with me, it's not for faint-hearted people because everything was going to be asked of Aeneas. He was going to be asked to renounce everything. That's the story. When I picked this up and started reading it this time, I hadn't read it in 20 years, and I hadn't read it then with a mind of teaching it because I read differently if I'm going to. I was shaken. I was shaken. I've been telling you all along that if we don't learn to see ourselves in characters, then we're not reading well. Well, whining, complaining, alcohol. I mean, <laughs> if, um, it seems to me in some ways we're being shown the sorts of things that goes on in an ordinary family. You know, it might not be to this degree, but the whining, the complaining, the kids fussing, the drinking, and um, so in one sense we can say this is about the disintegration. I mean, that's the way the Northerners would like to read Faulkner. In another sense, I think, in one level, this is about the human family, the, the burdens all of us carry. If you look at the Benji plot, nothing happens that's out of the ordinary. Maybe the quarrel of the family, and I can't believe most families don't have quarrels every once in a while, the family dinner or wherever it is. And yet underneath this nothing plot is this whole underworld that is, that has this, um, what, this amplitude, this, this enormous effect on the psyche of this human person, this Benji. Okay, let me read. So they're going along the fence and um, he wants to find his quarter. The men call out. Um, go to page four. So this is at the very beginning of, of the novel. Page four. Down, two-thirds of the way down. Wait a minute, Lester said. You snagged on that nail again. Can't you never crawl through here without snagging on that nail? There he is complaining. Benji just, I mean, what's he going to do? Caddy uncaught me and we crawled through Uncle Murray. So you know, I mean, those of you who haven't read, but we're, we're in Benji's mind now, and Lester's unsnagging him, takes him back to that moment when Caddy did this when he was just a child, an infant. So we're back in that world, and for Benji, they overlap, they, they intersect. It's not linear. They are multi-leveled all the time. Caddy and Cotney, we crawled through. Uncle Maury said, do not let anybody see us, so we better stoop over. Caddy said, stoop over, Benji, like this. See, I hope you hear the kindness in her. Stoop over like this. She's teaching him, and she's doing what a little, what, God bless. It breaks my heart when I read it. It's doing what a, it's doing what a little sister would want to do for her brother to help him. Particularly if he's, you know, not fully capable. Caddy said, stoop over, Benji, like this. See, we stooped over and crossed the garden where the flowers rasped and rattled against us. The ground was hard. We climbed the fence where the pigs were grunting and snuffing. I expect they're sorry because one of them got killed today. There she is. You know, that's a tender. Jason's not going to express a sentiment like that. Neither will Quentin. The ground was hard, churned and knotted. Keep your hands in your pocket, Caddy said, or they'll get froze. You don't want your hands froze on Christmas, do you? And immediately we're taken back to a day in the house um, where Murray is saying, keep him inside. Benji wants to get out. This whole page on page seven, or five, sorry, is about Benji wanting to get outside. So they finally dress him to go out because it's cold. Turn to page six. 
at the top. We went outdoors. The sun was cold and bright. Where are you headed for, Verse said. So you know Verse is the caretaker. Benji's still a little infant. You don't think you're going to town, does you? We went through the rattling leaves. The gate was cold. Keep in mind, this gate to me is so important. Again and again and again, it's a threshold. That gate is a symbol of a meeting place that's defining for this whole book. The gate was cold. You better keep them hands in your pockets, Verse said. When you get them froze onto the gate, then what do you do? Why don't you wait for them in the house? He put my hands into my pockets. I could hear him rattling in the leaves. I could smell the cold. The gate was cold. Go down. You better put them hands back in your pockets. Caddy was walking. Then she was running, her book's satchel swinging and jouncing behind her. Why did he want to come outside? Because she was coming home. Because he knew she... God, this... He knew she was coming home. Does anybody see it? Not a clue. Um... Satchel swinging and jouncing behind her. Hello, Benji, Caddy said. She opened the gate and came in and stooped down. Caddy smelled like leaves. Did you come to meet me, she said. Did you come to meet Caddy? What did you let him get his hand so cold for, Versh? Told him to keep him in his pockets, Versh said, holding on to that, that hung gate. Did you come to meet Caddy, she said, rubbing my hands. What is it? Oh, God, I can almost not read this. When I began to see this, it just broke my heart. What is it? What are you trying to tell Caddy? Caddy smelled like trees. And like when she says we were asleep. What are you moaning about, Lester said. Is there any clear disconnect? Are you all seeing it? This is what's inside of Benji. Lester has no clue. Who does? The poet. Anybody who reads him. What are you moaning about, Lester said. You can watch them again when we get to the branch. Here, here's, here's a Jimson weed. He just wants to placate him. He gave me the flower. He went through the fence into the lot. What is it, Caddy said. What are you trying to tell Caddy? Did they send him out, Verse? Couldn't keep him in, Verse said. He kept on until they let him go, and he comes straight here, down here, looking through the gate. What is it, Caddy said. Did you think it would be Christmas when I came home from school? Is that what you thought? She's the only one in this book that tries to imagine what's in him. Who sees this? God, it just breaks my heart. Nobody. Caddy. I mean, um, she's the only one struggling and over and over. Now, so here's the opening of the book. The very opening, this is announced. What is Benji trying to say? Christmas is day after tomorrow. Santa Claus, Benji, Santa Claus. Come on, let's run to the house and get warm. She took my hand and we ran through the bright rustling leaves. We ran up the steps and out of the bright cold into the dark cold. Uncle Murray was putting the bottle back. You know what he's been doing and what the father does too. Um, going over to page 20. I love this scene. Um... This is when Lester's been at the branch talking with this group of Negroes who've been washing clothes and he's been talking to this guy and letting him know that he's going to go to the show tonight and they start to go back and they approach the barn. Roscus was milking the cows at the barn. It's, the, it's seeing the cows that triggers this response from Benji. The cows came jumping out of the barn. We're at the bottom of 20. You all, we're all together. We have the same text, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Go on, TP said. Holler again. So TP is Benji's caretaker now. Holler again. I go into holler and I said, wooey. Quentin kicked TP again. He kicked TP <coughs> into the trough where the pigs ate. And TP lay, out, lay there. Hot dog, TP. Didn't he get me then? You see that white man kick me that time? Wooey. I wasn't crying, but I couldn't stop. I wasn't crying, but the ground wasn't still. And then I was crying. The ground kept sloping up and the cows ran up the hill. TP tried to get up. He fell down again and the cows ran down the hill. Quentin held my arm and we went towards the barn. Then the barn wasn't there and we had to wait until it came back. Excuse me. I didn't see it come back. It came behind us and Quentin set me down in the trough where the cows ate. What's happening? Do you all, do you all know? Are you all following? He's drunk. He's drunk. Yeah. He's drunk. <laughs> and the descriptions are an exact description of exactly the way that it appears to him. You know, the barn disappearing, coming back. The, the barn turning on its head and the cows turning on their head and going down the hill and up the hill. I mean, it's an exact description of what he's experiencing um, drunk. He came behind us and Quentin set me down on the trough where the cows ate. I held on to it. It was going away too and I held to it. The cows ran down the hill again across the door. I couldn't stop. Quentin and T.P. came up the hill fighting. T.P. was falling down the hill and Quentin dragged him up the hill. Oh, God. Quentin hit TP and I couldn't stop. Stand up, Quentin said. You stay right here. Don't you go away till I get back. Me and Benji going back to the wedding, TP said. Woo-wee. Quentin hit TP again. Go down a few lines. Um, I couldn't stop for laughing. I quit crying, but I couldn't stop. TP, he's dizzy. He's feeling things in, inside of himself from the effects of the alcohol. Um, but the funny thing to me is those descriptions of the barn going up and the cows going up and down the hill and he's obviously tumbling some um, going over to 29 um, um, towards the top um, I think this we're taken back into a day when um, Quentin um, um, just committed suicide. So the family is um, burying him. You, you, you know that there are three significant deaths. Damity, the grandmother, Damity, the grandmother dies in 1898, I think. Quentin dies in 1910. The father dies in 1912. So we get a succession of graveyard herbs, funeral scenes. And they can get mixed up like the other things, and we have to straighten them out. Um, at the top of 29, what's wrong with this place, T.P. said. Taint no luck in this place, Roska said. Turn that calf in if you're done. Taint no luck in this place, Roska said. The fire rose and fell behind him, and verse sliding on his. Verse's face, Dilsey finished, putting me to bed. The bed smelled like T.P. I liked it. What you know about it, Dilsey said. What trance you been in? Don't need no trance, Roscoe said. Ain't the sign of it looking right there in that bed? Ain't the sign of it been here for folks to see for 15 years? This is 1910, and she's 15. He, like so many of the blacks, and, and even the family in some way, see Benji as a sign of a curse. This is an Old Testament reading, and it's Calvinist. That God works these curses that carried on. I mean, they have this... this strong sense of superstition, and I think there's a strong element of a Calvin in it, that there's these dark curses working out. 
Um, we'll get this in a number of different phrasings, but it's, it, it, it has the same sort of sentiment behind it. Ain't the sign of it been here for folks for 15 years now? Suppose it is, Doozy said. It ain't her none of you and yours, is it? Verse working and fronting married off your hands and TP getting big enough to take your place when rheumatism finished getting you. They've been two now, Roscoe said. Going to be one more. I seen the sign of it. And you is too. I heard a switch owl that night, TP said. Dan wouldn't come and get his supper neither. Wouldn't come no closer than the barn. Begun howling right after dark. Verse heard him. Going to be more than one more, Dilsey said. Show me that man that ain't going to die. Bless Jesus. Dying in all, Roscoe said. I knows what you're thinking, Dilsey said. And there ain't going to be no luck in saying that name. Listen, you get up. you going to set up with him while he cries. They can't speak Caddy's name. And remember, Benji had his name changed. Um, on page 47... Um, I don't, I don't think we need. This is where um, Benji and Lester come to the swing, and Quentin gets really upset and runs off, and it's here that they find the condom. I think the the um, on page fifty fifty one is the more important one. Look here, because this to me is really crucial. Um, they're at the gate of the fence. And it's the association of the fence that sends back Benji back to those days when he went outside to the fence looking for Caddy and she didn't come. And this is what's happened because this is one of the most horrific scenes in the whole section if you look at it closely. 51. You can't do no good looking through the gate, TP said. Miss Caddy, Miss Caddy done gone long ways away, done gone married and left you. You can't do no good holding to the gate and crying. She can't hear you. What is it he wants, T.P., Mother said. Can't you play with him and keep him quiet? He want to go down yonder and look through the gate, T.P. said. He has no clue. There's no clue. Well, he cannot do it, Mother said. It's raining. You will have to play with him and keep him quiet. You, Benjamin. Ain't nothing going to quiet him, T.P. said. He think if he down at the gate, Miss Caddy come back. That's perceptive. He goes there that she might come. At least he sees that much. Nonsense, Mother said. She doesn't have a clue. I couldn't. He I could hear them talking. I went outdoor, and couldn't hear them. I went down the gate where the girls passed with their satchels. Now watch this and listen closely. They looked at me walking fast, their heads turned. I tried to say, but they went on. I went along the fence trying to say, and they went faster. Then they were running. I came to the corner of the fence, and I couldn't go no further. And I held onto the fence, looking after them and trying to say. Many times does Fokker have to say that? He wants us to know. What is Benji trying to say? Going down, um, we're, we're, um, we're back here. Of course not, Jason said. Don't you know I got better sense to do that? Do you think I wanted anything like this to happen? This family is bad enough, God knows. I could have told you all the time. I reckon you'll send him to Jackson now if Miss Burgess don't shoot him first. Um, because he's out there they think he's accosting the girls. What's he doing? He just wants somebody to talk to him. He's looking for Caddy because that's where she comes. He's looking for her. Go to the next page, 53. So, um, Jason's response? Send him to Jackson. Send him to a sane asylum. 
He doesn't belong here. This family's bad enough. Get rid of him. He wants to go out there to see his sister. God, get this just. They, uh, um, 53. They came on in the twilight. I wasn't crying. I held on to the gate. They came slow. I'm scared. He won't. This is another episode now. He won't hurt you. I pass here every day. He just runs along the fence. They came on. I opened the gate and they stopped turning. I was trying to say. And I caught her trying to say. And she screamed. And I was trying to say and trying. And the bright shapes began to stop. And I tried to get out. I tried to get it off my face. But the bright shapes were going again. They were going up the hill to where it fell away. And I tried to cry. But when I breathed in, I couldn't. Breathe out again to cry. And I tried to keep from falling off the hill. And I fell off the hill into the bright whirling shapes. Look, Looney, Luster said, here comes. Now we're back in the present. Has everybody seen the disconnect? Okay, just stop for a second now. Um, so, immediately after this, because he physically touches the girls, he's castrated. He's castrated. How well do people see? Well, well, I may be reading it wrong. I mean, maybe you think he's just out there, but he, I mean, Faulkner says, I was trying to say, I was trying to say. So the, the theme running through this thing, this whole section is, what is Benji trying to say? Now, the, the thing ends, let's turn to the very end. This is after the quarrel between um, Jason and Quentin. And... Um, um, Benji goes into the library and huddles by himself. Luster comes to get him because he wants to get onto the show, so he dresses him and gets him um, ready um, for bed. And then that triggers a response to the father years before on page 72. Um, Jason threw into the fire, it hissed, uncurled, turning back, then it was gray, then it was gone. Patty and father and Jason were in mother's chair. Jason's eyes were puffed shut and his mouth moved like tasting. Caddy's head was on father's shoulder. Her hair was like fire and little points of fire were in her eyes. And I went and father lifted me into the chair too and Caddy held me. She smelled like trees. She smelled like trees and the corner was dark but I could see the windows. I squatted there holding the slipper. I couldn't see it but my hands saw it. And I could hear it getting night, and my hands saw the slipper, but I couldn't see myself, but my hands could see the slipper. Um, he, he recalls other scenes, and then um, Dilsey dressing him for bed, and then it ends like this. I want to do this quickly because we have to wind up. Um, 74 is recalling um, these other episodes. Luster takes him to the window and they watch the tree rattle and we know that Quentin is escaping. She's going out to meet this guy again. There were two beds. Quentin got into the other one. He turned his face to the wall. Dilsey put Jason in with him. Caddy took her dress off. Just look at your drawers, Dilsey said. Remember, this is how it began when they were in the bratch and she took off her dress and got her drawers muddy. Just look at your drawers, Dilsey said. You better be glad your ma ain't seen you. I already told on her, Jason said. I bound you would, Dilsey said, and see what you got by it, Caddy, tattletale. What did I get by it, Jason said. When did you get your nighty on, Dilsey said. She went and helped Caddy take off her bodice and drawers. Just look at you, Dilsey said. She watered the drawers and scrubbed Caddy's behind with them. It done so clean through onto you, she said. 
Well, you won't get no bath this night. Here. She put Caddy's nightie on her. Caddy climbed into the bed, and Dilsey went to the door and stood with her hand on the light. You all be quiet now, you hear, she said. All right, Caddy said. Mother's not come in tonight, she said. So we still have to mind me. Yes, Dilsey said. Go to sleep now. Mother's sick, Caddy said. She and Damity are both sick. So this is taking us back to 19, 1898, 9, when Damity died. Remember that night? Because she and the mother were ill. Hush, Dilsey said. You go to sleep. The room went black, except the door. Then the door went black. Caddy said, Hush, Maury, putting her hand on me. So I stayed hushed. We could hear us. We could hear the dark. It went away, and Father looked at us. He looked at Quentin and Jason, then came and kissed Caddy and put his hand on my head. Is Mother very sick? Caddy said. No, Father. You are going to take good care of Maury. Yes, Caddy said. So this is before his name was changed. This is before the castration. Benji's three, Caddy is seven, somewhere in there. Father went to the door and looked at us again. Then the dark came back and he stood back at the door and then the door turned back again, black again. Caddy held me and I could hear us all and the darkness and something I could smell. And then I could see the windows where the trees were buzzing. Then the dark began to go in smooth, bright shapes like it always does, even when Caddy says that I have been asleep. I'm assuming that it's morning coming. I, um, and this is a new day, and it's cyclical. It will repeat. Um, now let me stop. The, 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 the serious question that we've got to ask is this one about the weekend. You know, why the, what's going on with Easter weekend? But we're going to have to wait on that because we need to put the sections together. But the question that I want to deal with here is, what is Benji trying to say? Here, let me, let me read this, because I, um, over and over again, what is it, Benji, tell Caddy? You wanted to tell her, but you couldn't, could you? Um, she does this again and again and again. She does it at the beginning, she does it towards the end, intermittently she does it. A couple of questions related. Where do these words come from since Benji can't use words? If you, go on, if you go online and you look up spark notes or something, it'll say, Benji narrated this. There's no way Benji could narrate this. There's no way Benji could narrate this. This is being, it's like a lyric poem, by the way. It's, it's, it's closer to a lyric than a narrative. That's why, that Faulkner's gone into the interior. We're closer to a lyric world here. Remember, the lyric is the inner world. The narrative's about events. We're in an interior world. This is being narrated. Benji's not narrating it. He can't speak. So, where do these words come from since Benji can't use words? He can't speak. And if he could talk, what would he have said to Caddy? What is he trying to say to her? When he went after the girls and tried to speak, he kept saying, I just want to say. Um, what was he trying to say? Since all is chaos and formless in him, we know that, right? There's almost not a linear world with him. It's not like we're going, I, I gave you the plot, goes to the fence, goes to the branch, goes to the swing, goes to dinner. That's it. But everything else, as we get it, you know from reading it, it's chaotic. It's hard enough for us to put it together. Imagine what it's like inside of Benji. There's nothing he can 
hold on to. I mean, we're inside the, a tale told by an idiot. Yeah? Tomorrow, tomorrow. Days run together. How does it end? Dawn's coming. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. On the surface of it, when we read it, everything's chaotic. It's all chaos. So where do these words come from? We know Faulkner gave it the order. He used, I mean, he gives us keys, right? Verse, DP, luster. We get the dates of things and we can, we can put it together. But inside of Benji's consciousness, inside his inner life, it's chaos and turmoil. Is there any order to the chaos that is Benji's interior? If it is, where does it come from? If there's a center, a single word at the center of his soul making all these words possible, the unfolding of the story, what makes it possible to unify them? Because even if it's chaotic in his mind, we can put it together. What is that word? Where do these words come from? Benji's memory. Sorry? Benji's memory. Words? From From sensations. In Benji's world, there is no timeline. It's all exciting, whether it's past, present, or future. And every time it's, so we, we move back from one time frame to another, it's triggered by some sensation he experiences. Fred. So like the nail in the gate, for yeah. example. Just hold, hold on to that. Oh. Is Benji, no, here, because I want, is Benji capable of putting together words like this? Through the fence, between the curling flower spaces, I could see them hitting. They were coming towards. Could he put anything together sequentially that neat as a description? Because we're not even in his memories right now. Through the fence between the curling, curling flowers. Could he even put an adjective, two adjectives together for a noun. Wait, wait. I could see them hitting sequence. They were coming towards where the flag was, and I went along the fence. Luster was hunting in the grass by the. He goes on and on and on. Is Benji capable of using words like that? And if not, I'm going to say not. Where do the words come from? Isn't that the narrator? Who's the narrator? Right. The narrator is, it's not who, it's the story being told. The story is being told by the narrator, not by the people who are in the action. Right. In Quentin, it's going to be a little bit easier because we think of Quentin as being intelligent. I mean, he's intellectual, so we can, you know, it's, it's a... By the way, the Quentin episode is not going to get easier. It doesn't get easier. <laughs> um, where do these words come from? Because this is Benji's consciousness. Well, here goes. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say this. Benji's incapable of speaking like that. What Faulkner's giving us, the poet, is giving a verbal rendering of what I believe in Benji's consciousness cannot take this verbal form and yet it's there being narrated. So I'm going to suggest that this is another indication of the logos that's at the center of a consciousness, that there are words there giving order and meaning even if we don't see it. We've been talking about this all along. When Othello said, I cannot speak words, and we get all these poetic utterances, a man is more than his speech. 
Men are more than the words we speak. We know that because there are so often things we can't find words to say. The poet is the one who helps us to see them. So what I, I think you may... It's the mind of Benji's poet? <laughs> no, that, that, that there is a logos at the center so that even in an idiot, you know, I mean, we've got the chaos. It's, it's being narrated. There is no narrator. It's being narrated. Um, we've, got a, we've got a rendering of chaos exactly as it is in Benji. But we can make sense of it. I'll put it differently. What if, what if Faulkner had done nothing to make sense of this, that we just got this scramble so that what the poet was imitating was chaos? It's called, a fal by the way, it's called the, fal the fallacy, of, fallacy of imitative form, that the way to express chaos is by being... Well, if, if it's unintelligible, what's there to read? The, the words in John, and the light came into the darkness, and the darkness could not send it away. How do we get into this darkness if it's not without words? And the poet is the one who's giving us. My suggestion here is that there is a, lo if we take this seriously, there is a, the logos at the center of every one of our souls. It's called the Christiani, the anima Christiani, the anima, the, the soul of Christ, that he had, we are each made in his image at the center of our souls is the word and the words unfolding. Otherwise, how do we explain this? It doesn't make sense. Um, if we're in Benji's mind by Benji's mind, it would be chaos. It would be, it would be incoherent, unintelligible. Faulkner has taken us in and how can he do that? There's no Benji here to speak the words. Where do the words come from? Well, either we say Faulkner's tricked us and he's tried to do something, but if you look at it, it doesn't make sense. Or we say there is some order in there amidst all the disorder, and the poet is the one who's brought it to light. It's the only way that I can make sense of this. So, so go back to my question. I'm, you may not, you may disagree, but take my question. What's Benji trying to say? This is, and he does. Well, what's Benji trying to say? He wants to say it, and he doesn't seem to have the words. Tracy, what? Well, like I see you, I thank you, I love you. That's my thought. I mean, th those are th exactly. I mean, those are exact. Thank you, I love you. When he likes trees and leaves and, and things of nature of the mm -hmm. earth. But he wants to, I mean, she cares for him, he wants to say something. And it's interesting, the reason I think it's that is because those words can't be spoken in this book. Benji's the only, I'm going to say, Benji's the only one, if you look at this, I love you. And he doesn't have words for it. Because in this world, you know, it's more than the trees and flowers. I mean, the one thing that, the one thing that focuses all of his actions is Caddy. Everything keeps, everything keeps taking him back to her, no matter what it is, a flower, a fire, light, a cushion, a slipper, you know. And every time we see him, it's, what are you trying to tell me? When he goes to the girls, I just wanted to say, and then he gets castrated. God. How's that for misreading in our world? God, breaks my heart. This is my sense of the book, that that opening chapter, you can read this chapter and think it's all the 
the what the words of the Aeneid. The word because lots of modern readers are going to read this and say it's futile. What's the point? If you put this together and watch the structure and watch Faulkner work with this, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? With Caddy at the center of it? And not having the words for it? it seems that there's only one thing. I love you. He doesn't know how to say that. Who taught him? From his mother, his father, his siblings? It's the one thing he has no words for. There's my shock. <laughs> I told you, I mean, I, I told you, I, I hadn't picked this up in 15 years, I've never taught it, and I was reading it and thinking, what am I going to do? And suddenly I saw this and thought, holy cow, what's he trying to say? So, we're off. There's the sound of the fury of the opening. The quitting section is not going to get easier. <laughs> oh, oh, oh! Can we have volunteers to bring something for the next couple of weeks? No. They're two different people. Will anybody, nobody's going to, somebody has to volunteer here. Do I have to appoint somebody? You can do this. We're going to be gone the week after that. Okay, can somebody do it the following week? You're going to do it? In two weeks? Okay. Six fifty for what? Oh, I. We're starting at six fifteen, six thirty. Well, your email says six fifteen. Can you guys look? Can six fifteen okay? It helps us not press at the end. I know it's. I know it's late for you, Candy. Just six fifteen. Yeah. Let's plan to start it. We'll start it. Come at six fifteen. We'll be starting between six fifteen and six thirty. But definitely we're underway then because I, I don't want to get later because it just presses too much. Did anybody end up with that recorder? Does anybody have the recorder? Doc, do you know where the recorder is? You have it? 